Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Welcome to this week's episode of Codish. I am just so excited to have as my guest, Karan Gupta, and we're going to be talking about the principles of pragmatic engineering. Karan, welcome to the show. Hey, Marcus. It's, uh, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to, to discuss this topic with you. So why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm currently at shift.com, which is a marketplace for, for cars. So if you're looking like buy or sell your car, it's a, it's a pretty easy way to do it. I'm SVP engineering over there. So I run technology and product. I'm lucky enough to be part of the team that helped take the company public last year. Before that, I was at uh, the Real Real, where also kind of lucky enough to go through an IPO. And other than that, I advise a couple of companies, you know, notably Alfie, which is a platform working for advancing women professionally from very early in their career journey. I also founded AliceApp.ai, which is a pretty fast, privacy-first recording and transcription service for investigative journalism. What else? A couple of companies before that. Yeah, I founded and sold a collaboration startup um, and, and took it through AngelPad. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a fun few years. So you have a long history in software engineering, and I think that's part of the reason I was so excited to talk about pragmatic engineering with you, because I do see a lot of people who miss the pragmatism. And so let's maybe just dive right into this idea. Like, what is pragmatic engineering? Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting question. You know, I, like, what is engineering in the first place, right? Like, why did I get into it? Mm-hmm. I remember very, very early on when I got introduced to computers, it's like super exciting I was using, you know, basic to create these amazing graphics on the screen. And it's amazing. Like, it's, it's so gratifying. It's so, it's so much fun, right? But then, you know, as you grow up and also as the industry has grown up, technology is now in every part of every business, right? Yeah. So it's, it's about kind of tying what we do with technology and the fun and the creative, you know, enjoyment that you have with technology, tying that into the business. So, so I kind of define it as it's about the oversized uh, having an oversized impact on the business by applying the right technology at the right time so for me you know pragmatic engineering is it's about building cool things but it's not just about building cool things it's about the technology the process of creating that technology and then you know its impact on the underlying business so you use the phrase oversized impact what does that mean it's probably going to be different for different businesses but essentially what this means is, you know, so, so think about the different kind of businesses where, um, you know, technology is being applied now. Everything from businesses that are very operations heavy to, you know, sales to, um, you know, selling ads online, you know, or something which is very purely technology centric. Oversized impact means that with the code that you deliver, you actually made a significant impact on the numbers that matter to the business. You know, whether it's top line revenue, whether it's profit for an operational business, it might be, you know, profit per unit. Uh, but the actual impact to the financials of the business, like I'm a fan of like medium to small size teams because it's a very quick line between the work that you do to the financials of the business. Then it is in larger companies. 
but I'm pretty sure, you know, even, even at a larger scale, you can still see how the work that you do is having an impact on, you know, for example, on, on earnings or, or financials. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the pragmatic side of engineering. When we talk about pragmatic engineering, what kind of principles come to mind for you? There are a few, and I've tried to put them down in, in order. But essentially what I think about is the, the, the four key things that matter. They are, you know, fastness, so the speed at which the user experiences your product. Then the next most important thing would be, you know, functionality. What are the capabilities that you're actually providing? And then after that is the form. How does it look and feel? And then finally, but still like really important, is the fabrication of it. How is everything built on the inside? And we can look at, you know, a couple of examples that I can think of. Uh, you take something like Google, especially in the early days, you know, just very, very simple. The only thing it provided was search, but it was super, super fast. You know, the results weren't necessarily perfect, but because it was so fast, there was nothing else on there. It just made it a pleasure to use. And you can see that with many, with most of the problems that we deal with, like, you know, whether you're in a small startup or a bigger company, like no one, no, no user ever said, I wish this web page was slower, right? <laughs> so I think speed like really matters. Then when it comes to functionality, it's about providing the right features that the user really cares about. So it's not about providing all of the features. It's not about providing the maximum amount of features. It's if you give your audience just the features that they care about, even if they are fewer than, say, another competitor, but they're fast and they function the way the user expects, that's already a key differentiator for your business. And if it is aesthetically pleasing, if those features, even though they are fewer, but they look good, they, they're easy enough to use because they're intuitive, again, like that differentiates you from the business. And, and finally, you know, on the fabrication part, it's about maintenance. If you've built them in such a way that they can be expanded upon, they can be you know, maintained by someone else long after you are gone, that's a core and important part of the product as well, even though the user doesn't see it. Well, let's dive into fast. So I don't think anyone would disagree that fast is better than slow, but how do engineering teams start to see fast as a value that they should prioritize above the next new feature or whatever the shiny thing is that fastness, because you, you listed that and you said these were in, pri in priority order. So how can teams start to make fast a priority? And maybe, maybe what examples do you have? It's not easy. You know, usually... Uh, in businesses, you know, definitely rolling out features is sort of our, you know, our instinct, right? Like story after story, feature after feature, epic after epic, like let's just get more stuff out there. And so I think uh, design and product and engineering have to work together to make speed and the performance of said feature part of the acceptance criteria. And, and famously, actually, GitHub was really good at this. They made it a very important part of launching any feature that it has to meet a certain performance criteria before it can actually be launched in production. And, and like, why not? Like there are a lot of best practices that we have learned over the years that we can use, you know, to fine tune web pages, you know, reduce JavaScript load, reduce, you know, improve how your CSS is organized and so on. That if you took an extra couple of days or whatever it takes to speed up that same feature 10, 20%, it might have a huge impact on the usability of that feature. 
you know, I've, I've worked uh, at places where the VP would swoop in one day and say, the system is so slow. This thing needs to be so much faster than it is. But what they failed to tell us was the part of the system that needed to be faster. It was just a very blanket statement. It needs to be faster. And therefore, the engineers ran around in a pretty chaotic way trying to make everything faster. But that doesn't seem like a good approach. How do we know what to make fast or how do we know what to prioritize in our search for speed? I mean, if you look at any, and let's focus on, let's say, let's say web apps, you know, because yeah. that's, that's most of the, most of our interactions with computers these days is through, is through web apps. Even if you're opening up an, um, an app on your phone, it's still, you know, powered by a, you know, a web server somewhere out there. So there are definitely many layers in that whole request response cycle where there are opportunities to make things faster. But generally what I'm talking about is about what the user experiences. Network latency is a fact. You, you can't change that, right? Uh, so if your user is, uh, you know, is on a 3G connection, for example, you as a, uh, as a backend engineer can't really change that. But what the team as a whole can see and can figure out is, okay, you know what? This person is going to face some latency. Let's put in something educational to show them that this is what we are doing while they're waiting. Apple, did, Apple has been really good at this, right? Like they would usually give you, you know, like a few bullets or something like, like the system is being set up, et cetera. So you kind of know that this is what's going on. So you, you have a feeling of that you're a part of the system being set up, even though, even though there is latency in it. I mean, it could be at the network level, at the database level, wherever it is. Getting very tactical though, of course, you know, things like database queries and so on. Those are things that most engineers know that they should tune and keep tuning throughout the life of the system so that things get better. In the front end, that's another area which has recently begun to become, you know, fatter and fatter. So there are obviously things there where you can fine tune. Uh, maybe you have, you know, five analytics libraries, whereas you could survive it too, you know. So there, there are things like that which teams could think about and discuss with their business partners to introduce performance into the into the system. But, I mean, there is one pet peeve I definitely have, which is around showing spinners. Oh, I was going to ask. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, spinners were all the rage 15 years ago when Ajax was introduced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, you know, like latency and, and delays and so on, like they, they're part of just how the, how the internet works. It's, it's a fact. But I think when we show spinners without showing uh, progression, without showing like an ETA, without showing, hey, this is what I'm trying to do behind the scenes, pardon me, but like, I, I think that's a bit lazy. I think design product managers can come up with something better to inform the user that, hey, this is what we're trying to do. So just, you know, give us a sec and, and we'll get there. And so one of the one of our personal goals is, you know, getting rid of spinners and using those as opportunities to inform the user that, hey, this, this is what we're doing behind the scenes so they can learn a bit more about our product. I love that you would intentionally design for that space. It reminds me of when 404 pages went just from being the numbers 404 on the server to an opportunity to, to help, to say like, oh, maybe you meant this, or like, if you're confused, start here. And we see a really nice 404 pages now, uh, which take advantage of the fact that problems occur and sometimes things don't go right. Oh, that's, that's such a great example, Marcus. Like some of them, 
I don't know if you remember some of them started building those the snake game. Oh yeah, on a, on a, on four four pages. That's right. It almost became like branding and and marketing uh, landing pages, right? Yeah, because it's so interesting. Well, let's go to the next one, and these are in order. So first, we started with fast, and the second one on the list is function, providing the necessary capabilities. This one seems obvious, but where's the pragmatic approach to function? There are always going to be more and more features that we think we want to introduce into our products. I mean, how many products do we know that have reached an end of life stage? Like in software, that kind of doesn't happen. You're always adding something to it, right? And you're very, very rarely taking anything out. Yeah. And what I'm trying to say here is like with, with the feature set, it's about being very conscious that once you add a feature, it's probably going to be there forever. It's probably going to need maintenance and love and care forever. So do we really want to put it in? So to use a common phrase, you know, less is more in, in, in the scenario, which is, for example, let's say you're on, e, you're on an e-commerce site. You could have, you know, search, favoriting, filters, you know, three different kinds of ways to lay out, you know, your grid of products and so on. I mean, maybe you only need half of that feature set. But half, but you can be sure that ha- by going with half of that feature set, it's going to be faster versus introducing, you know, those two or three extra ways of navigating that same list of products. That, I think, is a better combo than having two more ways of navigating that list, but now the entire thing is a little bit slower. I'm curious, you mentioned this idea that we almost never take things away, and you are exactly right. Are you an advocate for removing things that either we notice our customers aren't using as often, or I'm just curious, do you do you make it part of your engineering life cycle to remove features or UI elements or, or other things? Absolutely. I wouldn't say I'm very good at it, you know, because usually we aren't looking for those things. Mm-hmm. Usually I, we are leaning towards what is getting the most usage and let's keep improving it, keep, you know, tweaking it versus what is not getting used. So let, let me remove it. Ah, right. But there are opportunities like, uh, you know, sometimes hackathons and things of that nature you can create an opportunity where you can like step back, look at what's going on, gives you that chance to be a little bit thoughtful about your product. And, you know, potentially then you can take out certain features. I'm definitely in favor, but I'm just saying it is, it is hard to do in practice. So being careful and intentional, what we build, knowing that it might take a day to add a feature, but we're going to live with it for a lifetime. Just having that mindset. I love that. Well, how about this next one? So we, we hit fast. We hit function. Now we're going to go to form. Everybody seems to want things to be beautiful, but I have seen too beautiful sometimes. Where is pragmatic form? At? What does that look like? I de- deliberately put this like after speed and, and functionality. It's like once you have the right things and the, and the user is experiencing them in a performant way, then uh, you have to think about how those features are actually presented to the user. You, you know, a few years ago, we, we started seeing this, this trend, right? Where you have flat buttons, we remove shadows, and even to a certain extent, you know, just getting a bit tactical, like under the under the rails about using things like links where you should have buttons and using buttons where you should have links and so on. Like, it's just what happened within us, like as an industry, a few of these yeah. changes. But like what happens, a side effect of that is 
people who are say using you know screen readers now suddenly they start having a harder time or people who are used to noticing buttons a certain way um, maybe they don't have the late, latest gadgets with you know the latest high res screens it's a little bit harder for them to find the thing that they have to click so i think it's a, it's a balance between of course you know let's design something beautiful and pretty so it's aesthetically pleasing but it's also something which is intuitive and and straightforward for the user to get to uh, so a couple of things i like to talk about with my design teams is you know are you reducing cognitive overload are you reducing eye travel are things you know kind of where the user expects them to be even though they might not fit perfectly into this beautiful design matrix that you know you're trying to create so i i turned 50 last year and i'll be honest i have a hard time seeing thin fonts with low contrast between the font color and the background but uh, younger my younger peers and then colleagues don't have this problem but sometimes i really struggle and i wish that designers didn't have such good vision at times uh so one of the ways that we are trying to tackle this both at my at my grand company and you know another place where i work is 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 forcing us to change the the browser to use the viewports that our users will use most users are now actually using websites on their phones this is is pretty common knowledge now right and so um we have to make sure that when we design our product you're actually starting with the mobile web design first versus okay. desktop first i mean just making that that culture switch you know that itself yields such huge benefits for the customer because now and it's you know ultimately has a good impact on the business because you're designing it within the constraints that the user is going to be living in so i want to back up here just for a minute because we did put form after function but in places where i've worked a lot of times the designers get the project before the developers. So for example, there's some new screen and product says this is what it needs to do and they go to design and the UX people do the wireframes and the designers do visual designs. Um so all of that form gets like laid out um I think a long time before maybe some of the functional things are are thought of. Uh and once it hits Photoshop it's hard to change just to be honest like the designers get pretty darn attached just like engineers do to their work so do you have a, a kind of a process that you prefer that prioritizes fast over function over form i mean any any thoughts on what we should do differently that's actually a pretty good point you know uh, especially the one about you know once things are in photoshop and they look in a certain way you know it's you do get attached to it but then it doesn't translate into reality the same way right yeah because html and css don't exactly you know look the same as they did um on a photoshop uh, on a photoshop document now some of the tools uh, that we have now you know like figma and so on i i think they're definitely helping make that translation easier i also think tactically it helps the entire team if engineers get involved early in the process they get involved at the idea stage because i think the three working together product design and engineering very early like it helps the business overall like first of all engineers might have a totally different radical solution which is simpler and quicker to get out you know which is great for the business great for the product owner everybody right or they might be able to call out certain things in the design 
which uh, the designer just as a nature of their work might not be conscious of. Uh, I, I got to tell you, HTML checkboxes and drop downs come to mind. Uh, I've seen the designers spend weeks trying to make it look like a Photoshop mockup. When if the designer had realized what the browser could do for free, essentially, they may have made a different choice. Yeah, uh, you know, some of the best designers I've worked with, they took the time to start learning a little bit of CSS. You know, they're not going to become coders, but they love to use the inspect tool in the browser and start changing things on the fly to get a feel for, you know, what different variations might look like. And then, you know, take that into Photoshop or Sketch or Figma, whatever they're using. They get the limitations and, and they get the opportunities that, uh, that are available to them. And it goes back to fast. Using the built-in power of the browser, like use it the way it was meant to be used and it will naturally be faster. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and uh, I mean, there is, there is one like uh, real legit example actually from one of the companies where I worked at. The team wanted to put in like a fancy JavaScript drop-down, which which looks nice, you know, it, it feels great. You can put little icons, etc. But it just doesn't work for keyboard-based navigation. Oh. And it took an industrial researcher who came in and looked at how different employees were using that, you know, various aspects of our internal product with that drop-down to tell us that, that drop-down and the fact that it doesn't work great with the keyboard is costing us millions in revenue. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was because it, it added up, you know, it took an extra three seconds. You know, that's approximately 30,000 hours being added to the business. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, our last item here, I thought was really interesting. So we've, of course, as you've heard me repeat, we've hit fast, function form. Now we're on to fabrication. Why is fabrication interesting? Why did you why did you list that in these principles? I think it just comes from you know this years old like love of coding. It's it's like art, you know, and you like you can recognize good art if you're an artist. And the same way, you know, if you if you've been a coder for a while, you can recognize good code and you can recognize bad code. And it's just it just feels good to look at good code, doesn't it? You know, it does. like some of the some of the libraries that we end up using, some of the things that are really popular. I mean, they are that way because people gravitated towards making them, you know, even better and 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 more useful, improving them, keep refactoring them because they're beautiful bits of code. And you know, we I mean, we call our subject computer science, but it's actually more like it's not an exact science. It's, it's you know, it's a bit of an art, but yes, it's also yes. a science. You know. So for this, for this particular you know, topic, the way I think about it is, is how you're making your product, the way you're constructing the code, uh, the syntactical rules that you use, the coding guidelines that you have within, within your team. All of those things really matter because even though the user is not experiencing it directly, even though the business is not dealing with that directly, it has an impact on everything else. If the insides of the machine are great, well, it's going to perform well for years to come. So that's kind of what this one's about. It reminds me of how on the outside, I've been noticing a trend with cars that Kias are now looking more like Mercedes. And it sort of tricks me sometimes. But I always imagine that what really matters is actually under the hood, underneath the paint. And I don't want to say Kias are poor or anything else. But to me, it's clear that the fabrication has a lot of differences between cars like that. 
And I, and I do think that it matters in the end to the experience the person has and probably the mechanic. I think you mentioned this earlier and we talked about how long features live. Is there an element to remembering the time span of our work as we, as we fabricate it? Like this, this is going to be around a while. Yeah, I, I think definitely, you know, it's, you have to think about, you know, once I code this up or once I include uh, this library, which is, you know, looks like a quick hack right now, we may be stuck with it for a while. Like long after someone's moved on to a different team or even if they moved on to a different company, another coder, another engineer has to now maintain that, maintain that feature and that, that library or two that we introduced to support that feature. So something which is a, a quick hack and a useful hack at the time may end up being a burden two years from now. So, so it's definitely worth thinking about. Another, another aspect of this is actually, it's also about like not reinventing the wheel. You know, our industry, we've, we've done a lot of things over the past few decades. You know, web development, especially mobile development, we've come, a lot of the things have, have matured. Like I remember when, you know, ORMs were so complicated and new. Yes. And I'm, I'm giving away my age here. But when, you know, doing trying to do this with Java many, many years ago, well, there wasn't a standard conventional process for how ORMs, how you were supposed to work with databases. Everyone kind of had their own flavor. And we, we've reached that stage now with several frameworks where there are certain conventional processes we can take advantage of. So when it comes to thinking about how you construct your product, it's worth thinking about, is there something off the shelf that I can leverage, which is mature, which is well thought out to handle a lot of you know, scalability problems or maintenance problems, so that I can focus my time on things that are unique to, to my business and you know, to the users I'm trying to serve. What about the, the old phrase, perfect is the enemy of the good enough? How does that fit in a fabrication principle? Like I've seen this happen sometimes, you know, and you see this more with certain teams, which may be more like design oriented. And, and by design oriented, I mean like technical design oriented, where you're trying to perfect what you're going to make using, you know, documents, etc., before you actually start implementing that technology. Mm-hmm. Right. And what that does, I mean, it's great. It's great to have, have those discussions and it's great to reach alignment. But if you don't time box it, you can get into analysis paralysis and trying to figure out every single edge case, which can take much longer than simply creating a POC, which will show you in a much quicker manner if this is even feasible or not. Another aspect of this, you know, getting closer to, like say to the features that you're you're trying to provide your user might be that if you want to test something out, you you feel like you have an inkling, you've done some user research is showing you that, this particular feature is something that users might want, then you could either spend something like, you know, I don't know, four sprints, making it really high quality and releasing it. Or you could do a small POC, which you expose to a small group of your, your audience, your users, and see what kind of response you get. Spending very little effort versus trying to get it perfect from the get-go. And I think, you know, I mean, this is this is like, a lot of startups now follow this mentality, which is, you know, just moving quickly um, and iterating. So I really believe in that. Well, in our last moments here, 
I would actually like to do some quick hits on what I call tips and traps, because I have a feeling that you've got some things for us to avoid and maybe some things for us to do. So some do's and some do nots. Let's start with those things we should avoid. What do you got for us? I'd say when thinking about putting out, you know, a certain feature set, or if you are, you know, a very young company thinking about, you know, the startup and being very conscious about your, your budget and your runway, or even if you're a big company, don't start with the technology choice. Mm. We have this particular product or this particular feature that we are going to put out for users to use. So we need to get people to visit our site. They should find us easily, so our SEO must be good. Our pages should load fast, hopefully hit you know 90 plus on page speed insights. And we should be able to move quickly enough so that we can tweak things as we are observing our users' you know, um, behavior and, and attention to our product. And we have to operate within the constraints of X money and Y time. So once you, once you think about it from walking backwards from what you're trying to deliver, I think then you have much better insight on choosing the right technology for the job. I mean, maybe, maybe you write your, you know, your web app in React. Maybe it's using Ruby on Rails. Or maybe it's just putting your site up on Shopify. What? That's not engineering, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's, but if it's good for the business, you know, that's kind of like this one way to think about it, you know, and it, it may seem obvious when you hear it, like, of course, but, you know, I've seen this happen with a few different teams where we, we start with the technology because we, we love it and we enjoy it. But I think it serves the business and, of course, you know, your own personal learning much better. If you tie that technology choice directly to the, you know, to the business impact that you're trying to have. So, okay. So we're not going to start with technology choice. What's another trap that you see people fall into? Or, or you can choose, Karan, a tip. You choose which one you want to hand us. Let's, yeah, let's, okay, let's go with the tip next. I think um, this one again, you know, I, I suspect that these will sound obvious once people hear them, but be a, be a learning organization. Like I've seen this with some some really stellar engineers. You know, they are they're really good at what they do. They're really strong in certain things, but they're always open to learning a little bit about what new thing is coming out. They are open to very different opinions. They're open to different frameworks, different ways of thinking. I mean, I've actually experienced this with uh, with Elixir and Phoenix. I mean, Elixir and Phoenix are taken off, especially within the Ruby on Rails community. But it's great. You know, they. Um, you already had a strong framework and feature sets that you could have relied on for the you know for the next many years to come. But still, uh, strong engineers choose to open you know invest in something like Elixir and Phoenix, and now it's helping them in different ways, right? So I think being a learning organization, if you want to make engineering your career, I think it, you kind of owe it to yourself to keep picking up what's out there, and it'll help you make more informed choices. And it could be that your choice is to stick with the tried and tested, but at least you will know that you looked at the other options. Yeah, absolutely. I think engineers love to learn. And I think I look, I always look when I'm hiring engineers, I look for those that are really curious about other ways to do things. Um, not that I want them to spend all their time outside of work doing that, but do you have that curiosity and, and are you looking for opportunities to learn with every project? All right, well, let's do two more tips and traps today. So you pick, what do you want to hand us next? Uh, next might be the beware of the sunk cost fallacy. Oh, what? okay, tell, you're going to have to start by telling us what that is. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So this phrase might, might actually feel familiar to, to quite a few of your listeners. But let's say it's something you've already paid for, which has no impact on your decisions about the future. Right. So let's say we built a lot of custom code around code deployments. Okay. And at the time, it was the best option. So you spend a lot of time on it. You spend effort designing a, a good system. You have a team that is dedicated to maintaining that code deployment pipeline. And the business spent a bunch of money on it. And over the past many few years, we continue spending money on it to keep it up and running. But now, you know, Heroku comes on the scene. <laughs> and and I, I say this as a happy Heroku user, of course, um, not being paid to say it. I just, I've used it for many years. And uh, I've also used GCP and AWS for many years. But like Heroku comes along and code deployment is now a piece of cake. It's just auto deploys. It automatically runs your tests. Everything is quick and easy. Now you have a you have a fork in the road. You continue investing in this beautiful code deployment pipeline that you built, or you could leverage this this new and simple thing that's out there right now. And and so that's that's kind of the the choice that you have to make um, as an engineer, as an engineering team, as an engineering leader. Right? Is uh, the time and effort and money that you spend making your own code deployment pipeline that's already a sunk cost. Mm-hmm. And now you have to think about. Do we keep putting more money into it or do we not? So the fallacy part comes when we think, well, we've spent so much, we can't abandon it. I mean, we spent years on it. We we can't just throw it away. Absolutely, you know. I mean, and it's and it's also a little bit emotional, you know. It's it's natural for people to get emotionally attached to a project or a technology choice that they made. You know, especially if they themselves made it. Right. But you know, going back to where we started, like if our North Star is oversized impact of the business with technology, then we kind of owe it to our team, especially to our future team and the business to think really practically and rationally about choices, you know, going forward. So, so we have to keep, you know, what we've built, keep what we've done, keep it in mind, but kind of don't let it stifle us. The whole point of doing engineering is because it's creative and it's fun. So we kind of, uh, it, it'll be better if we continued thinking about things that way. All right, last tip or trap. What, what do you have for us? You know, we, we kind of touched upon it, but I'd say don't forget about maintenance and support. Really think about the cost of anything being added. And I'm, I'm talking about more um, about internal um, right now. You know, a quick hack now may cost, you know, a million dollars to repair in four years. Oof. You know, anything that you build, like it has to be supported. Libraries have to be updated. You know, so... It pays off to take a little bit of time, you know, thinking about what you're putting in before you open up the PR, you know, with the latest library. That's, you know, it seems pretty cool and fashionable right now, but um, it might be it might be out of fashion sooner than you think. You know, like React and Vue, TypeScript, they are kind of the top choices for front-end engineers right now. And a few years ago, it was Angular. Not saying Angular is gone, but... I don't hear about it as much as I hear about React anymore. Before that, it may have been Ember or Backbone. And before that, it was jQuery. And yeah, I think that's a great point and a great way to end the show. Kiran, thank you so much. Tell us where people can find out more about you and your company online. Uh, yeah, th- thank you so much, Marcus. You know, it was, it was awesome to talk to you. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. You can find our work on shift.com. I am MG on Twitter. That's K-A-R-A-N-M-G. And I can also be emailed at current at currentmg.com. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts. 